readings. This is your favorite Bible teacher coming to you from my Chandler home office, where for the time being we will continue our lecture series for the spring quarter. This is actually the fifth lecture in the spring quarter series, and today we will pick up a new book. We'll enter the book of Job and begin our journey through the portion of the Hebrew Bible typically called the wisdom literature. But more about that in just a moment. Let's begin, as we always do, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together this moment in time and online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I hope that uh, hearing my voice finds you well. And uh, Diane and I are doing well in this time of uh, isolation and social distancing. The kids are well, still gainfully employed. Uh, the mothers of the young ones are beside themselves trying to homeschool as well as continue in their particular employment situations. But we're all making the best of it. And we hope that things will relax a bit, perhaps as early as the opening weeks of the month of May. My intent, of course, with the spring quarter is to present eight lectures. That's typical of a duration of a spring quarter. And whether I have to do them online, as I've been doing, or can transition back to our venue uh, remains to be seen. I'll keep my finger on the pulse of things. Uh, again, I know that with relative ease, we could meet quite regularly in proper social distancing uh, situations at St. Pat's because the uh, parish hall provides space enough to do so. But the church would have to be open and staff would have to be present and all those other things have to fall into place. And so until that happens, I will press on in this modality, hoping as sort of a worst case scenario uh, that we will be able to meet and greet one another in August when I will present my summer series entitled A Month with Moses. So until I see you again, this is what we're going to have to continue to do. And so I'll invite you with me to open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Job. Now, I am going to take a particular position in regard to Job. I'm going to present it as a theatrical presentation that would be intended by the author to address a very important question, which has confounded religious thinkers since the beginning of time. And that is, quite simply, how is it possible or why do bad things happen to good people. To that end, I am presenting Job as a character of fiction, a literary creation, an actor on 
a stage rather than an historical character. Now, there are some in the biblical world who read the book of Job and imagine Job to be a character as real as themselves. The problem, of course, with that understanding is the way that God is depicted in the narrative, which will become very evident in just a few moments in the opening chapter. If Job is, in fact, a flesh-and-blooded character uh, who coursed through history at a time imagined to be about 2,000 years before Jesus, then the God character would have to be as equally real, and we would have to then struggle mightily with what the character God in this particular narrative is capable of doing. If, however, we allow wisdom literature to be wisdom literature and see Job as a fictional character, a created character, a persona on a stage, and the people that engage him themselves personas on the stage with particular intent in bringing questions to Job, then the narrative flows more smoothly, right? Because in that scenario, you have poetic license to imagine a theatrical presentation that would address the great and perplexing question of the day, which is why sometimes do terrible things happen to good people. Now, those who will argue that Job is a flesh and blood character will make the argument that, well, bad things happen to good people because those good people are really not good. And they just think themselves good, but in God's eyes, they're not. In fact, God knows the heart. God knows the mind. God knows the intent of the spirit. And so at the end of the day, we may think we're good, but in fact, we're not. And therefore, when bad things happen, we are somehow responsible for those events to have occurred. You'll see time and time again that Job will claim, reclaim, and proclaim his innocence. In fact, the whole presentation of Job in this theatrical sense is a requirement that we allow for Job to make a plea that he has his day in court. In fact, you'll see in a moment that the book of Job opens in a great courtroom-like setting, and Job wants to plead his case. And that's important, because that's where we'll be headed throughout the course of the next few weeks. There are other characters, obviously, in the theatrical presentation. God is introduced in chapter 1. Satan. Satan, yes. Not the devil, but a character that is an adversary, a prosecutor, if you will. The word Satan is in Hebrew translated into English rather like a prosecuting attorney, someone who brings accusation against others. That is the character Satan in chapter 1. We have Job, of course, sort of the anti-hero of the theatrical presentation. His wife, who is not at all a character sympathetic to the plight of her husband. We have Job's multiplicity of children and servants. And then, most significantly, three plus one equals four individual friends, in quotation marks, who arrive on the scene to challenge Job and try to get him to shut up 
and repent for God's sake so that all of the evil that has befallen him will be taken away. And we'll talk more about each of those individual characters as we make our way through the literature. Let's set the stage. As the book of Job opens, we read almost in a make-believe turn of a phrase, in the land of Uz, there was a blameless and upright man named Job who feared God and avoided evil. Now, what we know about Job is that by the end of the book of Job, the last two verses, he lives to be 140 years old and saw his children and grandchildren and even his great-grandchildren. And then Job, old and full of years, dies. So he lives 140 years and we ask ourselves, well, where in the biblical narrative are we comfortable in locating that duration of a lifespan? And it would take us back to the time of Abraham. And this may be, in fact, a marker for us that the idea of the author of the book of Job putting together this uh, theatrical scene is to place it in the time of Abraham. Remember, Abraham, we roughly remember, arrives on the scene of history around the year 2000 BC. And so that's where we would place Job, given the relative age that Job passes. Abraham dies when he's 170 five years of age. And then, as significant as the fact that we are in the time of Abraham, at least in our mind's eye, that's where the theatrical setting is placed historically, is the fact that Job, like Abraham, is not an Israelite. He is a Gentile, right? As Abraham was a Gentile, called by God out of Ur of the Chaldeans and out of Haran to follow the Spirit to the land of promise. God was working with a Gentile, right? And gave Abraham those three great promises that he would have a name, a family, that family would be secure in a land, the land of Israel. And out of that family and that land would come a blessing for all mankind. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. And that blessing was a promise of the Messiah who came from the family, if you will, of Abraham and was born in that land. And of course, that Messiah is Jesus. So Job shares with Abraham that unique characteristic of being a Gentile that God is dealing with in this theatrical presentation. And it suggests, of course, that this question about how it is possible that bad things happen to good people, crosses over all religions, right? The idea is not unique to Judaism, right? But everyone has always struggled with this particular question. And there are a number of ways to answer it, and that is the purpose of the book of Job. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, so let's just enter the theater, if you will, and place yourself as a member of the audience. And imagine a curtain rising, and a disembodied voice, the voice of a narrator, maybe uh, James Earl Jones, booming out in these opening lines. In the land of Uz, there was a blameless and upright man named Job, who feared God and avoided evil. Seven sons and three daughters, ten children, were born to him. 
He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-donkeys, and a very large household, so that he was greater than anyone else in the eastern part of the world. His sons used to take their turns giving feasts, sending invitations to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. All ten of the siblings gathered together. And when each feast had run its course, Job would send for them and sanctify them, rising early and offering sacrifices for every one of them. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in a state of drunken defilement, perhaps. Cursed God in their hearts. And this is what Job did habitually. Job's a good man. Now, unique to Job in the wisdom literature is that we don't have a genealogy. And this is one of the reasons the Jewish faith community has always imagined Job to be a character creative for fictive purposes, to be imagined on a stage. Every other biblical character that we've met, think of Abraham, uh, Isaac, Moses, Jacob, all have extensive genealogies. We know their family name and their genealogical history. We're not given that with Job, right? He just appears out of nowhere, and he becomes then the outlier, the unique character as a result. And by the way, also in Hebrew, his name, very evocative. Job, if you add a question mark after it, is a way of asking the question, where is God? Job. Jehovah is a name that we transliterate from Hebrew into English, and that name Jehovah is associated with God. Think of Jehovah's Witnesses. And so in Hebrew, the very name of the main character in this narrative, Jove, means where is God? And that's really the central message that is trying to be conveyed in the question that's asked in the midst of all of Job's suffering, where is God? Is he in the midst of it? Has he caused it? Why has he done this to me? All those questions are going to be addressed. So if that's all you know about the book of Job, you are light years ahead of anyone else. So we return then to Job chapter 1 in verse 6. Again, on the stage, one day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, the sons of God would be the angels. Satan also came among them, he himself in this theatrical presentation, an angelic being. And the Lord God said to Satan, Where have you been? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Roaming the earth and patrolling it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him, blameless and upright, fearing God and avoiding evil. I'm so proud of him. But Satan, the adversary, the prosecutor, the one who will bring accusation, responded to the Lord and said, Is it for nothing that Job is God-fearing? Have you not surrounded him and his family and all that he has with your protection? Have you not blessed the work of his hands and his livestock that are spread over all the land? But now put forth your hand and touch all he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, and God can say this in a theatrical presentation, right? Very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on him. So Satan went forth 
from the presence of the Lord with that divine commission. All right, so again, this is the imagination of an author that this scene takes place. Curtain comes down, curtain comes up. One day while his sons, in verse 13, and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing beside them, and the Sabaeans carried them off in a raid. Sabaeans are peoples who inhabit the region that we call today southern Saudi Arabia. They put the servants to the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came in and said, God's fire has fallen from heaven and struck the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you this. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three columns. Chaldea, ancient Chaldea, modern day Iraq, seized our camels, carried them off, and put the servants to the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And he was still speaking when another came and said, Your sons and daughters all were eating and drinking wine in the house of their eldest brother. And suddenly a great wind came from across the desert and smashed the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And all your sons and your daughters and their husbands and their wives are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you what. A magnificent opening. Again, Job is beside himself. He arose and does so on the stage and, and tears his cloak, an act of mourning, and cut off his hair. Again, symbolic of saying, I have no concern whatsoever about my appearance. I'm going to mourn the terrible loss of everything near and dear to me. And he fell to the ground and he worshipped and he cried out, naked. I came forth from my mother's womb, and naked shall I go back. The Lord gave, and now the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Now this is a prayer of a mourner that you've memorized in advance so that when mourning is necessary, you have words to access, you see. Much like in the Catholic faith tradition, when prayer is difficult, we can lean into the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory be. They, they give us consolation, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here, the prayer of a mourner. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. There's no understanding. There's no perfect reason, but blessed be the name of the Lord. So in all of this, Job, at the end of chapter one, did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong. That is, charge God with wrongdoing, that God doesn't deserve my respect and my honor. He's God and I'm not, is basically what Job is saying. Now, one day, again, in the courtroom scene of chapter one, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came with them again. The Lord said to Satan, where have you been? And Satan answered the Lord, as he had before, roaming the earth and patrolling it. And the Lord said to the Satan, to the Satan, that is to the adversary, to the prosecuting attorney, whose job it is to bring accusation. Have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him, blameless and upright, fearing God and avoiding evil. He still holds fast to his innocence, although you incited me against him 
to ruin him for nothing. And you see, you can only get away with characterizing God like this in a theatrical performance, because this isn't the way God has revealed himself, but it's an imaginative way that God would address this character, the Satan, in this performance. Well, in verse 4, the Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But put forth your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, then surely he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, The Satan, he is in your power. You can touch him, only you can't kill him. You must spare his life. So the Satan, the adversary, the prosecutor, went forth from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with severe boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, which made him miserable and, in addition, defiled him, if you will. He's not in a condition where he could make proper sacrificial offering for his own condition. He's lost his ten children, servants, by the score, all of his wealth in field and farm animals destroyed. And next, as the scene opens, we see Job seated on a stage with a pot shirt, a piece of broken pottery, scraping himself as he sat among ashes. Ashes, uh, the idea being the soot of the ashes would soothe the festering of the boils. His wife appears on the stage. She'll appear not once but twice in the theatrical performance. And she says to him with disdain and perhaps even a tone of disgust, Are you still holding your innocence? My husband, huh? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as foolish women do. We accept good things from God. Should we not accept evil? And through all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Even though his wife looked at him and said, You are somehow responsible for all of this. This much tragedy could not have befallen a man who had been innocent. Maybe you're only innocent in your own eyes. I say to you, in the condition I see you in, this is his wife's thinking, curse God and die. Now, when three, in verse 11, of Job's friends heard of all the misfortune that had come upon him, they set out one from his own place, Eliphaz and Taman and Bildad, and they met and journeyed together to give him sympathy and comfort. But when, at a distance, these three compatriots, friends of Job, lifted up their eyes and saw Job in the distance, they did not recognize him, and they began to weep aloud. They tore their cloaks and threw dust into the air over their heads. They're mourning the man who appears to be at death's door, and they sat down upon the ground with him seven days and seven nights. But none of them spoke a word to him, for they saw how great was his suffering. Those seven days and seven nights are the days of Sheva, a Hebrew word which means seven. And you spend seven days and seven nights mourning the loss after the burial of your loved ones. And what's unique about this particular sitting is that these three friends don't speak to Job. The whole point of sitting in Sheba is to be available for family 
members and friends of the deceased to appear and bring solace and comfort, food and conversation, remembering the wonderful and happy days when the deceased was among the living. But Job is in such a particularly difficult situation that they are speechless. You see, the theatrical images here are quite evocative, and you could really put this together on a stage quite easily to make Job such a hideous character that they're afraid to even speak to him. They won't be afraid for long, but will only begin to speak after they hear his first monologue. The first monologue will take up chapter 3 of the book of Job. After the seven days are over, Job opened his mouth and cursed, but not God, he cursed his day, meaning the day of his birth. He's going to curse the day of his birth. Why was he ever brought forth from the womb? And so he spoke out, the three surrounding him, listening intently. Intently, I'm sorry. Perish the day, he says, on which I was born. The night when they said, the sun has come. May that day be darkness. May God above not care for it. May light not shine upon it. May darkness and gloom claim it. Clouds settle upon it. Blackness of day. Fright it. May obscurity seize that night. May it not be counted among the days of the year, nor enter into the number of months. May that night be barren. Let no joyful outcry greet it. Why? Well, verse 10. Because it did not keep shot that day. The doors of the womb to shield my eyes from birth and therefore from trouble. Why, he asks in verse 11, Job, saying, Did I not die at birth, and come forth from the womb, and then expire? Why did knees of my mother receive me, or breasts of my mother nurse me? For then, if I had died after birth, I should have lain down and been tranquil. Had I slept, I should then have been at rest, with kings and counselors of the earth in Sheol, who rebuilt what were ruins, or with princes who had gold and filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not buried away, like a stillborn child, like babies that had never seen the light? There, in that place of rest, the wicked cease from troubling. There, the weary are at rest. The captives are at ease together, and hear no overseer's voice. Death takes us all, you see. Small and great are there, verse 19. The servant is free from the master. Why is light given to the toilers, life to the bitter in spirit? Job says, with clarity, they wait for death, and then it doesn't come. They search for it more than for hidden treasures, and that must have been the condition Job found himself in. And then they rejoice in it exultingly, and are glad when they find the grave. A man whose path is hidden from him, one whom God has hemmed in. That's Job's assessment of his particular situation. God has hemmed me in. For to me, he says, sighing in verse 24, comes more readily than food. My groans well forth like water. For what I feared overtakes me. What I dreaded comes upon me. I have no peace nor ease. I have no rest. For trouble has come and my life has not come to an end. So that's the opening salvo across the bow that the first of his 
three friends is going to address. Each friend is going to represent a certain argument based on the understanding at that time as to why sometimes bad things happen to seemingly good people. And the first of the three named friends is Eliphaz. He's a Temanite. And we'll call him the man of experience. Sort of the man who says, well, in response to what I just heard you say, and since I've seen it all before, my experience has taught me that. And to cut to the chase, he's going to argue, you are guilty of something. Nothing like this could have befallen a man who isn't guilty of something. You've lost everything. The one person that's remained alive has told you to curse God and die. That's your lovely wife. It can't get any worse than this. And so you may consider yourself innocent, but probably you're not. So just get it over with. Hedge your bets, repent, and move on. Because it's been my experience, Eliphaz will argue again and again and again, God never does bring bad things to good people. God brings bad things to bad people. But we know from Job chapter 1 that Job is righteous. Not once, but twice. God exalts him in front of the assembled angels in heaven and before the adversary, the Satan, as well. Have you considered my friend Job? So God considers him righteous. Never lose sight of that. God considers him innocent. And he's going to prove that through this course of engaging speeches. And so in chapter 4, Eliphaz, remember, the man of experience, begins to respond. If someone, he says, attempts a word with you, would you mind? Can I speak, please? How can anyone refrain any longer from speaking, especially after what you just said? Look, Joe, you have instructed many and made firm their feeble hands in the course of your life. Your words have upheld the stumbler. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now that it comes to you, you are impatient. When it touches you, you are dismayed. Aren't you going to take your own advice, is basically the argument. Is not your piety a source of confidence, and your integrity of life your hope? Reflect now. What innocent person perishes. It's been my experience that guilty people perish and you've lost everything. You've effectively begun the process of perishing so you can't be innocent. As I see it, verse 8, the man of experience, those who plow mischief and sow trouble will reap them and that seems to be what's happened to you. By the breath of God they perish and by the blast of his wrath they are consumed. Though the lion roars, though the king of the beasts cries out, yet the teeth of the young lions are broken. An old lion, like yourself, perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word, he says to Jove, was stealthily brought to me. My insight is spirit-inspired, or so he imagines. My ear caught a whisper of it. In verse 13, in my thoughts during visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and shuddering that terrified me to the bone. Then a spirit passed before me, and the hair of my body stood on end. It paused, 
but its likeness I could not recognize. A figure was before me. My eyes saw it in silence. Then I heard a voice. Can anyone be more in the right than God? Can man be more blameless than their maker? It seems to me, Job, you think you might be. God is God and you're not. You're guilty of something, my friend. So, in verse 18, look, he puts no trust in his servants, and even with his messengers he finds fault. How much more with those who dwell in houses of clay? With what messengers does he find fault? Well, Satan, who's led a rebellion in heaven and has been cast headlong down to the earth, a messenger, an angelos, someone who's sent from heaven to speak to men. So, if he puts no trust, complete, whole, and entire in his servants, in his messengers, in his angels who are created beings who have free will, how much more with those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed more easily than a moth, like you. Morning or evening, they may be shattered unnoticed. They perish forever. The pegs of their tents are plucked up. They die without knowing wisdom. So call now, Job. Will anyone respond to you? Chapter 5. To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely impatience kills the fool and indignation slays the simpleton. In fact, I have seen a fool spreading his roots, but I cursed his household suddenly. I said, may his children be far from safety. May they be crushed at the gate without a rescuer. What they have reaped may the hungry eat up for God or God take away by blight, or the thirsty swallow their substance. That is, they're evil, and they deserve their fate. And I've prayed that they receive what they deserve. You see, in verse 7, it's been his experience that men, human beings, beget mischief as sparks fly upward. It's as certain as that reality of a campfire. In your place, if I were you, I would appeal to God. And to God I would state my plea. He does things great and unsearchable, things marvelous and innumerable. I mean, he gives rain upon the earth and sends water upon the field. He sets up the lowly on high, and those who mourn are raised to safety. He frustrates the plans of the cunning, so that their hands achieve no success. And he catches the wise in their own ruse, and the designs of the crafty are routed. They meet with darkness in the daytime. At noontime they grope as though they were in the night. But he saves the poor from the sword of their mouth, from the hand of the mighty. Lest the needy have hope, and iniquity closes its mouth. Happy the one whom God reproves. The Almighty's discipline, the Almighty's discipline do not reject. For he wounds, but he binds up. He strikes, but his hands give healing. God is trying to get your attention. Job, that's my experience, uh, argues Eliphaz. That is, that all these things that have befallen you are to startle you and shake you so that you'll finally repent and return to God's good graces. Verse 19, out of six troubles, he will deliver you. And at the seventh, no evil shall touch you if you repent. In famine, he will deliver you from death and in war from the power of the sword. From the scourge of the tongue... Gossip, slander, you shall be hidden, and you shall not fear approaching ruin. At ruin and want you shall laugh. The beasts of the earth will not be anything you need to fear. 
with the stones of the field shall your covenant be, and the wild beasts shall be at peace with you, and you shall know that your tent is secure. Taking stock of your household, you shall miss nothing. You shall know that your descendants are many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. And you shall approach the grave in full vigor, restored, as a shock of grain comes in at its season. See, this we have searched out. So it is. This is my argument from experience. You're guilty of something, man. And the fact that you've suffered so dramatically suggests you're really guilty of really something big. And you need to repent. See, this is what we have searched out in verse 27. So it is. This is what we have heard and what you should know. So that's a summation of the argument of our man of experience. And Job's not going to take that lying down. He's going to respond, and he does in chapter 6. Job answers his friend in chapter 6 and says, Ah, could my anguish be measured? And my calamity laid with it on the scales. They would now outweigh the sands of the sea because I speak without restraint. You have no idea, he says to Eliphaz, how despondent I truly am. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me and my spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And then in verse 8, oh, that I might have my request and this is the request, that God would grant what I long for, even that God would decide to crush me. They would put forth his hand and cut me off. I pray that God would take my life so I no longer have to live in this state of perpetual misery. In verse 10, then I should have consolation and could exalt through unremitting pain because I have not transgressed the commands of the Holy One. Now, some will say, ah, you just did. That's the sin of pride. You're proud of the fact that you've not transgressed the commands of the Holy One. But the Jews never look at that kind of a statement as being prideful. Basically, to keep the commands of God is very simple. He created us as good in order to be good. To be good, we do good. And we know that from chapter 1, Job went out of his way to be good and do good to as many people as possible. And the blessings he received were the blessings that he received because of his goodness. And so he maintains his innocence. In verse 10, I have not transgressed the commands of the Holy One. He's not prideful in that. He's honest in that assessment. And we know it to be true because of Job chapter 1. Now he goes on in verse 11 to say, What strength have I? that I should endure. It's to the end I find myself. And what is my limit that I should be patient? Have I the strength of stones, or is my flesh like bronze that can last forever? No. Have I no helper, and has my good sense deserted me? A friend owes kindness to one in despair, though he has forsaken the fear of the Almighty. And Job is saying to Eliphaz, a man of experience, I'm not at all consoled by your words. My companions, these three men, are undependable as a wadi, as water courses that run dry in the wadis, arroyos, that, that are only intermittently filled with water. Though they may be black with ice and with snow heaped upon them, 
Yet once they flow, they cease to be in the heat. They disappear from their place. The Salt River comes to mind. Caravans wander from their routes. They go into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tema search. The companies of Sheba have hopes, but they are disappointed. Though they were confident, they come there and they are frustrated because where they thought there should be water, there was no longer. It is thus that you have now become for me. Because you've said, Eliphaz, you see a terrifying thing and you are afraid. Have I said, give me something, make a bribe on my behalf from your possessions? Have I said, deliver me from the hand of the enemy, redeem me from the oppressors, teach me and I will be silent, make me understand how I have erred? How painful honest words can be, yet how unconvincing is your argument? Because Job says, I'm innocent. And so your argument of experience that these kind of things have happened to others before and they've happened to you on a factor of 10x and in the past when they happened to people before they were guilty and sinners. So you must be the greatest sinner of all. In verse 26, do you consider your words as proof, but the sayings of a desperate man as just the wind? You would even cast lots for the orphan, and would barter over a friend. Come now, give me your attention. Surely I will not lie to your face. Think it over. Let there be no injustice. Think it over. I am still right. Is there any insecurity on my tongue? Or cannot my taste discern falsehood? And then he goes on to say, in my experience, chapter 7, I find myself innocent. He goes on in verse 11 to say, My own utterance, chapter 7, verse 11, I will not restrain. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And he does so by, in verse 17, addressing God. Now this is a bold and daring move that you can get away with on a theatrical stage. And here he does himself in chapter 7, verse 17. What are human beings? that you make much of them or pay them any heed, he says to God. You, God, observe them every morning and try them at every moment. How long? How long, God, before you look away from me and let me alone until I swallow my spittle? <clears throat> if I sin, what do I do to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target why should I be a burden for you? Job's aware of sin and its effects. He was offering sacrifice for his children on the off chance that they had sinned unknowingly. But he knows he's not done anything to deserve this kind of suffering. Why have you made me, in verse 20, your target? Why should I be a burden for you? Why do you not pardon my offense or take away my guilt? For soon I shall lie down in the dust. And should you seek me, I shall be gone. Now remember, he maintains his innocence. In verse 10 of chapter 6, I have not transgressed the commands of the Holy One. But I'll entertain the idea that perhaps there's something that I can ask for forgiveness for, if that's what you require, if that's what experience demands. But that's not the answer to this question. Why has so much evil befallen such a good man? And that brings an end to the engagement with Eliphaz. Now, he's going to address Job 
two more times, bringing, again, the same argument of experience to the fore. But next week, when we come together, we'll meet Bildad, who is our man of tradition. A man of experience has an argument. A man of tradition has an argument. And then, finally, we'll meet the third friend, Zofar. And he's a man who will argue from the perspective of religion. So, the beginning, experience, tradition, and religion all seem to say, Job, you're guilty of an egregious offense against God. But we know in Job chapter 1, he's not. And never forget that Job's name can be loosely translated as, where is God in all of this? This is an engaging text, and we'll look forward to looking deeper into these next two arguments when I speak with you next week. But until then, that's all the time your Bible teacher has. And so I want to take a moment to remind you of what a great student you are, staying current with our Bible class. And I wish you well and pray for your health and safety. God bless and good day.